for any who were with, were with us uh, in the service this morning, we actually practiced all the themes that we're going to think about tonight. We practiced them in this morning as we thought about Genesis 1, God who created the world um, and made humankind in his image. And also as we came to um, the communion table to remember the death of Jesus. And so I feel as we, we are looking at this passage and as we're thinking about what it means to find meaning in Christ, that actually this service should simply be a response to the treasures that we see here in this passage. I'm not going to say anything that you've not heard before, nothing very wise, very stumbling, and yet the beauty of this passage, I hope, will capture our hearts as we pray it together, as we think about some of the words, as we encourage one another uh, in, in following Jesus, being part of his body here in St. Andrews. During the summer, um, some of the students who were still around um, continued to meet in, in my home for study. And I, think, I don't think any of them were Christians at all. And so we did various bits and pieces and it included a, a sort of overview of the Bible and um, what the different types of um, text and, and stories in the Bible are. And at the end of that, I said, what would you like to study next week? And uh, one of the girls from Japan said, I like, when you talked about that book that talks about the meaning of life, can we, can we do that next week? Because I want to know the meaning of life. <laughs> So we had two weeks looking at the meaning of life. And um, so we chose some passages for the first week and Judy led that. And then in the second week, um, I said, no, can, can you remember what we, what we looked at last week? Because I think they, the argument of Ecclesiastes is quite circular and it would be interesting to see how the awake students get on uh, as they look at that um, this term. And so we sort of wrote down some of the things that they had remembered from um, looking at some of the passages um, about foolish and bad people, about um, the dangers of women, <laughs> um, the, uh, the talk about how um, work, what is the point of work, it's just a lot of study and then what, they quite like that one, um, life being unfair, um, the temporiness of life. The idea that we're naked in birth and in death. Um, and what, what, what does it all mean? That refrain that keeps coming up, life is meaningless, life is meaningless, life is meaningless. And it does strike me that then I, I sort of cut it all up. And it's a funny sort of dangly thing as, we go, as the philosopher goes round and round. What, what is the meaning of life? And then I thought, now Lord, what do I say? Because Ecclesiastes, it's in the Old Testament. And it would be interesting to see what, what Awake um, discovers. But you know, there is things about respecting the Creator and remembering Him in our youth, which is good, and God coming to judge. But what else is there? And I, don't, I, I sort of half plan Bible studies, and then I see what the Spirit does. <laughs> and there was the cross sitting on the mantelpiece. And I said, you know, this is Ecclesiastes with really important questions, questions that Christians still ask, as well as people who are not Christians. 
But the philosopher didn't know Jesus. The philosopher was someone who perhaps was a Jew, probably was, and knew something of the Jewish scriptures, but he hadn't come to the cross. And I think this passage uh, tonight talks to us about how somehow the questions, the big issues of life, that perhaps we don't always get answers to in this world, somehow they come together, they congregate at the cross. And we know something and we can praise the Lord Jesus, whom the philosopher in Ecclesiastes never knew, because in Christ we find meaning. In him all things hold together. And so we see in this passage um, Paul talking about Jesus. Jesus who must have the supremacy, who is supreme. At the beginning of um, the term uh, in chaplaincy, we had a sort of society's fair. And um, all the different religious societies in the university were there in chaplaincy on, on tables talking about their program, what they were doing, what they were planning, the food for the week, etc. And I walked around talking to all the different religious societies. I think it's a really good thing. I think it's wonderful that the, the people of different uh, religious traditions and faith can meet in chaplaincy, can discuss what faith means to him, can listen to each other, so that we're not just talking about what they think. <laughs> we're actually talking to people who believe these things. But it also had a sort of feel of a supermarket, that you sort of walk around and you choose, perhaps, which faith you might plump for. I remember watching a program once um, with Elvis Presley's sister talking about how he wore a Jewish cross, uh, sorry, a Jewish star and a Christian cross and another other symbol. And she said he, he had all the religious symbols because he didn't want to be kept out of heaven on a technicality. <laughs> or I read somewhere of David Beckham who said, I do want to get baptized one day, but I'm not sure into which religion. Tonight, we worship Jesus who is supreme, who is above all of these. And while we can learn from people of other religious faiths, and why, how we can be, be friends with them, and in many ways understand good things from what they say, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is supreme. And this passage points the spotlight to him uh, all, all, again and again and again. I don't know if you've ever heard this song, and I'm not going to sing it to you, but perhaps you've heard it sung 20 or more years ago, John uh, Osborne. If God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face if you were faced with him in all his glory? What would you ask if you had just one question? If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see it if it meant that you'd have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all the prophets? What if God was one of us? God does have a name. God does have a face. And God has shown himself and he has shown his face in Jesus. Jesus is Lord.
Jesus is supreme. And we see in this lovely hymn something about his unique relationship with the Father. He is the image of God, the invisible one. When Ian and I visited Japan, we were taken to many temples. This was a Shinto temple. And um, very empty, the, the girl on the right was just praying to an empty building. And outside there were um, wooden things where you could write prayers. And when students or alumni took me around the temples, I would say, who are you praying to? And they would say, the gods. And I'd say, what are the gods like? And they'd say, we don't know. That's the question, isn't it, that so many are asking. What is God like? If God had a face, what would it look like? And here we are reminded that in Jesus we see the God who cannot be seen. I don't know if you've ever gone to see these camera obscura. I don't understand the physics of it, but I know that we go into the dark and we look at this sort of funny shape white thing on the ground in front of us. And as someone moves a camera around 360 degrees, we see bit by bit something that is outside in the street. The exact image of what is happening outside comes into this canonical round thing in front of us. And we see things. We see walk, people walking along, but they can't see us. We see the exact image of what is happening outside. Jesus mirrors the true character of God. Roy Clements, um, who uh, I, I listened to for this sermon, said something that really touched me. Jesus is the projection in time and space of a God who lives beyond, both, beyond these dimensions. Jesus is the projection in time and space of a God who lives beyond these dimensions. Some people might say today, and perhaps in um, Paul's days, well actually projection isn't the real thing. It's just an image. It's a photo. So is Jesus really God? And yet Paul, uh, in verse 19, Jesus was indwelt by God. All his fullness dwells in him. He's not simply like God, but God himself in all his deity. The Street Bible translates this verse. That Jesus, he's got the capacity to take in the totality of God without exploding. So then is he really human? Yes, verse 22, Paul talks about Christ's physical body. We already thought this morning about how humankind was made in the image of God. But actually we are very imperfectly uh, the image of God. And yet Jesus... He was the original prototype for the human race. He is the image as it is always meant to be. The Colossians lived in the Roman Empire, which was surrounded by images of Caesar. In the marketplace, in the city square, in the public baths, in the theatres, in the gymnasiums, in the temples. 
And the furnishings of every day, the coins, the lamps, the, the money, the pictures, in public and private life, they were a constant daily reminder that they were part of an empire and that they were part of um, the empire of a master who had to be obeyed. If you think of more recent empires, Stalin or Saddam Hussein, sometimes called the fathers of the nation, this sort of benefactory look about them, and yet actually much more sinister, that eerie sense of them watching, watching over the people who live in their empires, making sure that their position is secure. Today, in Scotland, perhaps we don't have those type of empires, but some have said that global consumerism is the, um, today's empire. It looks very benign and optimistic. A finite world can sustain exponential growth. Economic growth is the driving force of history. Consumer choice is what makes us human, and greed is normal, it's good. And so the images are corporate logos, advertising, Coca-Cola, Disney, Nike, all over the world recognized. And they tell a story, don't they, of consumer affluence, Western superiority, the march of economic progress. But actually they mask the reality of sweatshops, inequality, greed, and as we thought about this morning, slavery. And in the face of these ubiquitous images of empire, Paul proclaims Jesus as the true image of God. And he calls the Colossians and he calls us to bear the image of Jesus in shaping an alternative to this empire. If God had a face, what would it look like? It looks like Jesus. A God who stoops to the poorest and the most vulnerable. A God of utter self-giving love. When I'm listening to someone who's interested in Christianity, I know that they're coming very close to understanding. When they speak less of him upstairs, or God in a sort of sterile, general, sort of remote term, and when they begin to talk about Jesus... When they begin to talk about Jesus, I know that they're beginning to understand the essence of God, who God is. God has come near us in the person of Jesus. God is one of us. We praise the Lord Jesus, Jesus who is supreme, not only in his relationship with God the Father, but also in his relationship with creation. The Jewish people, when they were talking about creation, I understand when they talked about God's work, often used the um, idea of wisdom. And here Paul replaces wisdom with the Son. Jesus is God's wisdom personified. And Paul is reminding us here that Jesus, uh, as the supreme uh, creator of the world, leads us to the next question, which is, why are we here? Why are we here? 
there was a time when people were always talking about postmodernism. I don't know if they talk about it so much now, or perhaps I've just read all the books and I'm onto something else. But one of the things that were a feature, I think, of postmodernism was this um, incredulity um, about big meta narratives, the big stories. People were um, much more cynical about them. A group called the Smashing Pumpkins. 20 years ago, one of their um, lines, and we're all dead inside the future of a shattered past because all the grand stories of the past had actually proved to be lies. This Marxist utopia, this dream of democratic capitalism. And perhaps there was a sense that all these big narratives, these stories that explained the course and destination of history just feeded violence and oppression. Another film, a film, pump up the volume, and the protagonist says, there's nothing left to do anymore. Everything decent's been done. All the great themes have been used up and turned into theme parks. And yet, despite this suspicion of the big narratives, there is also a longing. Why are we here? That's what the girl in the Bible study was asking. What is the meaning of life? That's what I want to know. And here we're reminded that Jesus was there from the beginning. Father and son were like the head and hand of a craftsperson in a single act of will, an agent of creation, shaping it, things in heaven, things on earth, including even the secular institutions and the spiritual beings, as well as the mountains and the trees and the stars. And so the universe is the product of design and purpose. The sun is the logic and the intelligence that gives the cosmos its rationality, that actually enables scientists to do their work, to make certain presuppositions as they explore the world. And the harmony of the universe isn't just based on equations and mathematical ideas. There's actually a divine personality there. A divine personality with an eye for beauty, for the funny, for the generous, for the quirky. And the sun holds creation together in a coherence, nothing outside his control, nothing beyond his sphere of influence. Technology has often been hailed as bringing together prosperity and freedom to anyone who has access to the internet, especially connecting people across the continents. I read of an advertisement for AT&T in Canada. Your world without limits. It's not about phones or faxes or the World Wide Web. They're just tools for you to do what you want, to be what you want, to get what you want from life. Life? You get out of it what you put into it. Introducing AT&T Canada True Choice, a world of communication tools for the only world that matters yours. But the truth is that the dislocated universe actually doesn't come together through technology. It's great, but it can't deliver us a sense of purpose and meaningful connection. Ours is not the only world that matters. Jesus is the one who holds all things together. Why are we here? Jesus is the purpose of creation. All things were created for him. Creation is the arena in which he accomplishes God's plan. He is the source of creation and its deepest secret.
you will see in your um, program for our evening services a little bit later, we're doing three evenings on vocation. And I think that promises to be a really good uh, series, thinking about why are we here? Why was I here? Why, what, what is my part in the bigger picture of God's purposes? And perhaps you've felt that sometimes when you have been doing something or something has happened and you've thought, yes, this is why I was made. This is why God made me this personality with these people around me at this time. Or when a church together comes to a conclusion, perhaps at the end of a, a meeting, yes, this is why we have been made for this time in this place to accomplish God's purposes. Meditation practices often talk about centering, don't you? You close your eyes and you think about being centered. And it's because we're all over the place. We're fractured, we're broken, we're pulled in many different directions. Jesus holds it all together. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is supreme in his unique relationship to the Father answering the question, what is God like? In this unique relationship to the creation, answering the question, why are we here? But Jesus is also supreme in his unique work on the cross, answering the question, how can the world be put right? The world's a mess, isn't it? Disorder and disharmony, the universe is out of joint. Evil has infected the angelic hosts, the beautiful earth, human society. A cosmic war rages. And humankind made in the image of God is out of harmony with him. The passage tells us rebels in thought and action, proudly independent and offensive to the creator. And perpetrators and victims of wickedness, institutions and individuals are broken and corrupt. We see it on the news all the time, don't we? And we see it also within ourselves. Douglas Copeland has written quite a lot um, about being Generation X. And this quote that's often used uh, at the end of a book called Life After God, exploring a world where God is absent, but the very last page there's something that comes out where he says, my secret is that I need God, that I'm sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem capable of giving. To help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness. To help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. And so it is that the one who created the world is the one that healed it he's the only one who can and so the son the firstborn of creation is also the firstborn from the dead this great cosmic narrative has actually an arrow that points straight to that cross in history at Calvary where Jesus dies to reconcile all things in him God absorbs within himself the pain and the anger that sin and rebellion have caused him. And the evidence, Paul says, 
that he succeeded is in the, in the existence of the church at Colossae, Kathmandu, Calais, Cooper, and St. Andrews, a community that lives in the power of this good news with lives that are holy and free from accusation, a community that embodies forgiveness and reconciliation. Every time we take communion, and again this morning as I look at people coming up, people of all shapes and sizes from all different parts of the globe, all different experiences of God, some with a lot of knowledge of him, some perhaps just recently begin to explore the truths of the gospel, coming together at the foot of the cross to take the body and the blood of Jesus. A community that in public and in private points to Jesus and to that work of renewing that he accomplished on the cross. And so Paul encourages the Colossi uh, Christians and encourages us to, to continue in the faith. Strong and stable was a, an expression long before Theresa May got it. And I think that's what he's encouraging the Christians here to be. After all that Christ has done for you, his good news, the work that he did on the cross, has got to permeate all of your life. So do persevere. And as you persevere in the darkness and in the, the um, mayhem that this world uh, throws at you, this will be a sign that God is bringing together all things in Christ. It's a sign of hope that one day, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ to the glory of God the Father. In a minute, I would invite us to have perhaps a time of open prayer where we respond, uh, perhaps just with short prayers, to some of the amazing truths that we have been thinking about this evening. But I want to read something that um, struck me um, as I was preparing for this. Um, very interesting book by Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kismat called Colossians Remixed. And uh, it's a book where they keep producing what they call targums, <laughs> which is a translation of um, a Bible text with interpretation. And I, I found this very, very helpful, and I hope it might be helpful for you. It takes about two or three minutes, I think. But I hope it will help to expand our imagination about this passage. In an image-saturated world, a world of ubiquitous corporate logos permeating your consciousness, a world of dehydrated and captive imaginations in which we're too numbed, satiated and co-opted to be able to dream of life otherwise, a world in which the empire of global economic affluence has achieved the monopoly of our imaginations, in this world, Christ is the image of the invisible God. In this world, driven by images with a vengeance, Christ is the image par excellence, the image above all other images, the image that is not a facade, the image that's not trying to sell you anything, 
the image that refuses to co-opt you. Christ is the image of the invisible God. The image of God, a flesh and blood, here and now, in time and history, with joys and sorrows. Image of who God is. The image of God, a flesh and blood, here and now, in time and history, with joys and sorrows. Image of who we're called to be, image bearers of this God. He is the source of a liberated imagination, a subversion of the empire, because it all starts with him, and it all ends with him. Everything, all things, whatever you can imagine, visible and invisible, mountains and atoms, outer space, urban space and cyberspace, whether it be the Pentagon, Disneyland, Microsoft, or AT&T, whether it be the institutionalized power structures of the state, the academy, or the market, all things have been created in him and through him. He is their source, their purpose, their goal, even in their rebellion, even in their idolatry. He is the sovereign one, their power and authority is derived at best, parasitic at worst. In the face of the empire, in the face of presumptuous claims to sovereignty, in the face of the imperial and idolatrous forces in our lives, Christ is before all things. He is sovereign in life, not the pimped dreams of the global market, not the idolatrous forces of nationalism, nor the insatiable desires of a consumer culture. In the face of a disconnected world, where home is a domain in cyberspace, where neighborhood is a chat room, where public space is a shopping mall, where information technology promises a tuned in, reconnected world, all things hold together in Christ. All creation is a deeply personal cosmos, all cohering and interconnected in Jesus. And this sovereignty takes on cultural flesh. And this coherence of all things is socially embedded in the church, against all odds, against most of the evidence, in a show-me culture where words alone don't cut it, The church is the flesh and blood here and now in time and history with joys and sorrows embodiment of this Christ as a body politic around a common meal in alternative economic practices in radical service to the most vulnerable in refusal of the empire in love of this creation. The church reimagines the world in the image of the invisible God. In the face of a disappointed world of betrayal, a world in which all fixed points have proven illusory, a world in which we're anchorless and adrift, Christ is the foundation, the origin, the way, the truth, and the life. In the face of a culture of death, a world of killing fields, a world of the waking dead, Christ is at the head of a resurrection parade, transforming our tears of betrayal into tears of joy, 
giving us dancing shoes for the resurrection party. And in this dance, all that was broken, all that was estranged, all that was alienated, all that was dislocated and disconnected, what once was hurt, what once was friction, is reconciled, comes home, is healed and is made whole because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Everything, all things, whatever you can imagine, visible and invisible, mountains and atoms, outer space, urban space and cyberspace, every inch of creation, every dimension of our lives, all things are reconciled in him. And it happens on a cross. It all happens at a state execution where the governor did not commute the sentence. It all happens at the hands of an empire that has captured our imagination. It all happens through blood, not through the power, power grab of the sovereign one. It all happens in embraced pain for the sake of others. It all happens on a cross, arms outstretched in embrace. And this is the image of the invisible God. This is the body of Christ. Lord, as we stand <clears throat> at the foot of the cross, point in history where you reconciled the world to yourself. We come with gratitude and awe and thanksgiving. We recognize that there's so much about that great narrative that is not yet. And Lord, we pray for all who are living in that not yetness for whom hope is such a struggle. We pray for those who are in suffering in body or mind or spirit. Those for whom these grand narratives barely touch because the here and now is so painful. And we pray that something of your love demonstrated in Jesus may be a presence with them to soothe and comfort. Lord, in this day as we have thought of slavery, we pray for the thousands and millions across this world in slavery. Physical slavery to people who have taken them without their consent and abused them. We pray for those who work for justice and peace. We pray for those enslaved in addiction, those enslaved because of poverty, those enslaved because of political regimes, those enslaved because of physical or mental disability. And we pray for all those who work for uh, releasing the captives and bringing hope to those who are dispossessed and heartbroken. Lord Jesus, this week, may your church be the body of Christ, 
as it goes throughout the world from Monday all the rest of the week in different spheres being Jesus to people who need to know him we pray that you would strengthen us in your service Amen